Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Um, if you have a Bible this morning, we're going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 5. We're continuing in the Sermon on the Mount, and um, we will uh, uh, track along here uh, in the next several verses. We're actually going to wrap up um, chapter 5 uh, chapter five today, and I want to uh, do so. We've been trying to say this in different ways along the way as we've journeyed through these uh, verses together and the teachings of Jesus together. We've been trying to say this in different ways, and so I want to take another angle, see if this helps people make sense. Does the name Antoine Yates bring anybody's uh, memory? Does it jog anybody's memory? Anybody? I wouldn't think so, but about 18 years ago in New York City, he called 911. I need some help. I am really hurt, really bad. Can you please send some help? So first responders being first responders, they showed up, and indeed, Mr. Yates was in terrible shape, having been mauled by his tiger that he kept in his New York City apartment. After he got stitched up, fixed up, and whatever else was going to be part of his story, um, they asked him, they said, excuse me, Mr. Yates, like, what in the world were you thinking? You got a 450-pound wildcat in your apartment, in, in your apartment, not your house, not like in your backyard, in, in your apartment in New York City. He said, well, I really don't know anything about racing big cats, but I just knew I had a lot of love. <laughs> I don't think that was sufficient, people. <laughs> Some of us, when we get to the whole nature nurture thing, we're a little bit like Mr. Yates. We think that due to the nurture side of us, if we can just take the right steps, if we can um, do the right things and not do the wrong things, then that will be sufficient for us to change. Jesus describes this in Matthew chapter 5 as the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. It is is an external um, righteousness, one that is focused on our actions and on the appearances that we have. We want to make sure and check the right boxes. We want to make sure and not check the wrong boxes, answer yes to the right questions, answer no to to the right questions, and that will cause us to be righteous. And we think that nurture is what Jesus is doing here and just giving us a list of things to do. But he's very clear about this. In chapter 5, verse 20, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, unless the genuine goodness of God that is at work in you goes beyond box checking, goes beyond externalities, goes beyond simply nurture, um, you will miss the kingdom altogether. Jesus wants to deal with us in our nature and then through his nurture, help us to grow into his likeness. That's what we're after. But he has to change the one first and he does so as we um, put our trust in him, put our faith in him, his life, his teaching, his work on the cross and his resurrection. Jesus, the genuine goodness of God is available to us through Jesus. He's changing our nature. Change it so that we can then grow as he wants us to. Um, this, this is kind of what we're uh, after today. And it is what Jesus has been doing all along. There are multiple places in the Bible where this is taught, multiple places where it can be seen. Um, there is nowhere more succinctly stated in Hosea 10, verse 12, that if you sow for yourselves righteousness, you reap steadfast love. Righteousness, as we've been defining it, the genuine goodness of God. So if that comes into our lives and permeates our lives, then what, according to the Bible, what comes out of us? Steadfast love. 
God's kind of love. If, if his goodness permeates us, changes us from the inside, if, if it works on our nature, then part of the fruit that comes out as we grow in Jesus, as we are nurtured along in the um, path of following him, what comes out of us is love. This has been true of anger. You've heard it said, don't murder. I'm telling you, don't be angry. And an expression of that was love for those. And he talked about this. Um, Jesus uh, dealt with us uh, at the level of desire, where our desires sometimes get out of whack, or they are deviant, or we even cultivate them. And he says, we need to deal with that. This is what Jesus has been doing. Let's sow righteousness and let's reap love. In our most intimate relationship, the relationship of marriage, um, let's sow righteousness and let's reap love. And then last week, um, let's sow righteousness, the genuine goodness of God, into the way that we speak to one another and what will come out of us is love. We sow righteousness we reap love. And today we take up two parallel topics, um, a generous goodwill and uh, making neighbors out of enemies. And what I want to say to you, uh, this will be the last slide that pops up, but I want it to be the first thought in your mind. What Jesus' life is, is an illustration of everything that he's going to say. His life is going to be an illustration of everything you'll see here. In Matthew chapter 5. So let's uh, start in verse 38. You've heard it said, it says, uh, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you, take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard it said, verse 43, you shall love your enemy, and, excuse me, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in the heavens. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good since rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? And he summarizes chapter 5. We talked about this several weeks ago now, but he summarizes chapter 5. Therefore, you must be perfect, complete, whole, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I want to talk about these two things, this generous goodwill, um, and then talking about making neighbors out of enemies. So let's back up to verse 38. Uh, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Anybody want to learn some Latin here just for a minute? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the context, you can roll this out, really impress somebody this week. The context is lex talionis. Anybody? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, forget it. Um, it, it was uh, the, the law of vengeance, and um, it was uh, accepted. It was a, a mosaic teaching, uh, the teaching from Moses in the law. It was even ex- uh, existed before then. But the whole idea was to stop the kind of cycle of vengeance and revenge that we are prone to. So if I come along and uh, uh, Curtis uh, uh, busts out my eye, me and my tribe, what are we prone to do? Not only take Curtis's eye, but maybe his other eye or his hand or somebody else's eye out of his tribe too. Well then, because we've now avenged ourselves, he then feels wronged even more than what he did. So what would he do? He would rally his troops and then we've got Hatfields and McCoys. We've got a land war in Central Asia. We have the entire history of the Middle East. I mean, this is where we are. And our history, our history of humanity is packed full of people who do not live according to this. So this is a societal good. It is. But this is not what Jesus is after. It is something, although he uh, it is designed to stop the spiral of violence and revenge 
Uh, Jesus is reversing the presumption. And what he's doing in that moment is saying, people expect you to do evil for evil. The kind of people that Jesus is making here will do good when they are wronged. We want what's fair, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And Jesus comes along and says, what's fair is way too low of a bar for what we are, uh, uh, the, the, the kind of kingdom that Jesus is bringing. Fairness, that's, that's too small. It's too low of a goal. We want something else entirely. And Jesus is reversing the presumption here. He illustrates this with these four illustrations starting in verse 39. But I say to you, don't resist the one who's evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So this slapping of the cheek, turning the cheek, um, it, it was personally um, degrading and humiliating, but it was also publicly degrading and humiliating uh, to experience someone slapping you on the cheek. And Jesus is so smart here. Don't, don't just, I mean, every word of the Bible matters, folks. Every one of them. Don't miss what he's saying here. Um, if anyone slaps you, which cheek, which cheek did he specify? Which one? Speak, speak, speak. Which one? Right, right cheek. Okay. So I, if you've got somebody close to you, I want you to turn to them. We're not going to have a show and tell here. No, we're not going to do that. A couple of you are actually scooting away from people. That's if you've got somebody close, you turn to them. Okay, if you're going to slap them on the right cheek, what hand do you have to use? Your left hand. So to slap somebody with a left hand, that's bad enough. There is a way to slap somebody on the right cheek with your right hand. And how would you do that? You would backhand them. Also degrading and humiliating. This is not an impassioned, I can't believe you said that. I mean, this is not that. This is designed to be humiliating. It is designed to be degrading towards someone. I am going to whack you. Turn the other cheek. Second illustration that he says, when we reverse this presumption, we will do good. Actually, when we're wrong. Uh, verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. This is about demanding our rights um, or expressing a lack of concern um, for another. You see, in a kind of legal setting, uh, what, sue you for your cloak, take your... I don't know how well this particular um, thing translates for you and for me. So let me, let me try to put it in... Um, I, this is not apples to apples here, I fully recognize, but let me try to stick it in the same zip code. Let's pretend in Houston traffic, uh, you get into a fender bender and you are the uh, bender of the fender, Okay. You're the one who did it. So you hop out, you swap information. You, uh, let me see your driver's license, take a picture. Let me see your insurance card, take a picture. They do the same, back and forth, back and forth. And then at, at that point, once, once everything kind of moves along in the legal process, then you, because you have their um, contact information, uh, then you write a note to them and just say, hey, Sorry, we had to meet the other day under the circumstances which we did. And again, I'm so sorry for the um, inconvenience and problems that this would cause you. Um, here's a gift card to a restaurant. Please have dinner on my family uh, with your family. I, again, one more time. I'm so sorry that this happened. That's not exactly an analog, but we're in the same zip code. Giving the cloak. Third illustration. 
And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This, um, in first century Roman Empire time, a soldier or government official could conscript you, bring you into his service um, for uh, to carry a burden or something like that for a mile. That was kind of the general uh, regulation. So you see in the crucifixion narrative, just an example of this, Simon of Cyrene is, is uh, forced to carry the cross of Jesus um, up the hill there. This is that kind of scenario. This is what we're talking about. And he says, hey, look, if you're going to go one mile, go ahead and go two. If you're going to be forced into service to go one mile, be forced into two. Um, these are, this is related to imposed restrictions and forced regulations. Re- things that um, are true in our culture, true in our society that we can't really get around or do anything about. But our approach, if we're going to reverse the presumption, not do evil when evil is done to us, but instead do good, it's not a matter of just going one mile, but going two. It's not a matter of just checking the box of following the restriction, but genuinely doing it out of love. Now, I know Jesus is speaking um, to the first century uh, people, and I'm quite confident that imposed restrictions and that kind of thing don't have anything to do with our day and age, right? Probably not relevant to where we are. Just thought maybe, just maybe you would know something about what it means to live under these regulations or these restrictions. Last thing he says, verse 42, give to the one who begs from you. Don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is a a personal inconvenience and at times even a relational distrust. Give to the one who asks of you. Don't, don't, don't withhold from somebody who would want to, to borrow from you. And again, I know this isn't exactly apples to apples, uh, but something along the lines of um, got a neighbor uh, in, in where I live. I got a neighbor that he and I have swapped garage codes. Anybody have a neighbor like that? We swapped garage codes because any tool that's in my garage, he's welcome to. And any tool that's in his, and if I'm missing a tool... I can almost guarantee I know exactly where it is. Currently, I'm borrowing his compressor, and he has my uh, tamper to tamp some soil down because he's doing some fence work. If I need a tamper, I know where mine is. If he needs a compressor, you know. This is that kind of thing where we just just do it. This is what we're talking about. This is, again, that kind of same, not exactly the same thing, but in that zip code. But here's what I don't want you to do because this is not what Jesus is doing. We can't make these into new laws. Some people approach this as Moses was right here, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But Jesus, oh, isn't he awesome? He went from here to like here. Moses is running at a real steady seven. Jesus passed 10. He's at like 11 or 12, right? I mean, he's way up here. And here's the problem with that. If we're making these um, into new laws, then what will happen is we as a people, we will check the boxes. We will become a, a folks who um, have a righteousness that is external. We will have the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, but we will not become the kind of person that Jesus is illustrating here. And if, if we do this, we may very well find ourselves, and we do, we find ourselves in one of two places, neither of which Jesus is actually advocating for. If we take these as new laws, it will result in either or and our passivism or our legalism. Passivism. Um, Some people take a worldview and they inject it into Jesus' words here 
And they say, well, I mean, just let, let's put, let's put all, you know, kind of war and, and defense and that's good. Let's just set all of that to the side. And I just want to say to you, um, there are times when defense is absolutely needed, but it will be done so for the greater good. Jesus is speaking about the normal interaction between humans, not structural evils, systemic evils, societal evils, um, evils, uh, and problems on the geopolitical scale. He's not talking about those kind of things. It's why Romans 12 sits right next to Romans 13. Romans 12, how to deal with things interpersonally. Romans 13, we trust the government to deal with things on the political and larger scale scene. This is why it sits, those two things sit together. Um, there will be times when our defense is needed. But it will be differently motivated than revenge. Or the other place people end up, if not pacifism, injecting their thoughts into Jesus' words. The other place people end up is legalism. This is probably a little more dangerous uh, for us. And if, if we end up thinking these are new laws, checking these boxes, then we cheapen what Jesus has said. And we don't recognize that Jesus, the words of Jesus here don't cover every eventuality. He's illustrating for us. He is not prescribing new laws for us. Um, if we are the kind of people who say, okay, Jesus, um, here, here is what is going to go. Am I, the question we ask, end up asking is, am I doing the things that Jesus illustrated? And the question we need to be asking is, am I the kind of person that Jesus is illustrating? Oh. Turn the other cheek. It could be that if I got slapped on one cheek and I offer the other and take a shot then, well, then I'm free to fight at that point, right? Um, or I may take that if somebody comes into my house in the middle of the night and wants to do evil to me. I may take that as, oh, I, I'm going to turn my cheek and I'll turn the rest of my family's cheeks as well. But Jesus doesn't ask us to do that. Um, carrying the burden. Well, I'm going to go one mile. Oh, oh, okay, Jesus. Moses is here. Here you are. Okay, I'll go two miles. And at mile 2.0000000, I'm going to drop the burden right there. Pick it up yourself. Is that the kind of person Jesus is illustrating? No. No, it's not. Uh, just a couple... He doesn't cover every eventuality. And so I just, I give you just a couple of things just to ponder. Um, if I owe some money to somebody uh, or something, a store that I bought something from, we're financing whatever. Ed comes along and he says, hey, can I borrow $5? But that $5 was meant to pay back that debt. Now I'm in a quandary. I can say to Ed, no, or I can say to the people that I owe debt to, no. And Jesus wouldn't want us to negate one obligation and think that this now somehow obligates me to something else. He's, this is not what he's doing. If I'm a heart surgeon and uh, I'm here helping someone and all of a sudden my pager goes off, beep, 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 we need you at the hospital right this very second. Do I say, oh, no, no, I'm helping someone. There's a second mile. I must go. Or what do I do? Get in the car and go. So it doesn't cover every eventuality. And we can't think if I just don't do the, if I just do the things that Jesus has in these illustrations that I will be righteous. That is not what Jesus is doing. The question is not, can I fulfill these illustrations? The question is, can I become the kind of person who does things like this? And I just point out again, his life illustrates his teaching. He is generously 
He acts in generosity towards us, and he does so with goodwill. Okay, verse 43, the second part. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. So here's the thing. Um, When it comes to making neighbors out of our enemies, there's a broader context. Jesus has done this multiple times uh, in in multiple uh, settings. I'll give you one, probably a famous one, most famous one. Jesus is in a conversation with somebody and they say, hey, uh, what do I need to do to fulfill the law? Jesus is like, hey, easy one, love your neighbor. Oh, the guy goes, he's a lawyer. Well, who's my neighbor? <laughs> that, that's what a lawyer would ask. That's what he asked. Who's my neighbor? And uh, Jesus tells this story uh, about a guy who falls among robbers. A priest goes by, a Levite goes by. This is Luke chapter 10. And then a Samaritan. We tell the story as the good Samaritan. A Samaritan comes along who has absolutely no reason to step into somebody else's mess. In fact, has every reason to avoid it. And yet the Samaritan is the one who does so. And Jesus looks at the lawyer and goes, so who do you think did it? Well, the one who showed mercy. And the point of Jesus' illustration is this. Who is our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? The neighbor is the one that we choose to make a neighbor of. We talk about it around here as neighbor is a verb. Our neighbor is whomever, whomever we choose to make our neighbor. So we can even do that out of our enemies. And the things that Jesus is going to offload for us here, it's not a how-to. So if you're looking for how to love your neighbor, this is not it. The question is, um, or or the, the illustrations that Jesus will provide show us If the genuine goodness of God, if the righteousness of the kingdom comes into our lives and gets activated in us and changes our nature and nurtures us in our growth and and following Jesus, then if that happens, then our love of neighbor, our making neighbors of enemies might look like this, starting in verse 44. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you would be sons of your father, the one who is in the heavens. It looks like praying for them. It looks like praying for them. Because in prayer, we are setting them before God to say, God, would you please do what is best for them? Do what is good for them? Would your genuine goodness be at work in their lives too? So just let's bring it down to where we live. Who do you think is on the opposite side of the fence? And how are you praying for them? Has the genuine goodness of God so gone to work inside of you that you are praying for someone that you think is an enemy, that you think is an adversary? That boss, that, 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 that person at work who just always seems to be in your way or somehow holding you back. Your spouse. Because currently, based upon your <clears throat> conversation this morning... Y'all are on opposite sides of something. Or that kid, or that parent. Who, that neighbor, that coworker, that friend. That, who is it in your life that you, that you have? Hey, I'm on the other side of the fence on this deal. Can you pray for them? If the goodness of God has permeated your life, then prayer is one expression of the love. If we've sown righteousness and reaped love, prayer is one of those expressions. Verse 45, in the middle of there, he says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. I I phrase it this way, that we would, if God's goodness has permeated our lives, 
and we, we seek to make neighbors of enemies, one of the things that we can do is trust God's providence. Providence is a good old theological word. And the word has two kind of portions to it. Uh, I just, I put them in C words. So one is his control. Aren't you glad that God is the one who is in control of all the affairs that are going on in the universe? Everything is spinning how he wants it to spin. Everything is under his say and sway. He is in control of things. Pandemics are not in control. Uh, presidents and politicians are not in control. There are all sorts of things that claim, think they are in control or claim to be in control. But the truth is, is that God is the one who's in control. Can anybody say amen to that? But not as if he's up there just inputting some data and outputting some sort inputting. He's not. He is intimately involved and cares for. So control, but also care. He cares about the affairs of you and me. He cares about what's going on. He cares about what we're feeling. He cares about um, how the situation is unfolding. He cares about that relationship that we also were concerned about. He cares about the balance in our bank account or the balance in our retirement account as we think about this next stage of our lives, whatever it may be. He cares about what's going on. He does. His control and his care. That's God's providence. Biblically expressed, he causes the sun to rise and he causes the sun to set. And he causes um, the rain to fall. And there are times when the rain doesn't fall. We trust God's providence. I say that because did anybody have anything this week that you thought about, that you planned for, that you hoped for, that you prayed for? And it went the opposite way. Anybody have that? God, here I am. I'm dealing with this issue, and this is what I'm hoping, this is what I'm praying, this is what I've done to prepare. I mean, I am, I am trying to be a good steward of everything that you've given me here, and so I'm taking this step of faith, and this happens over here. And you're like, hey, wait a minute. And in that moment, in that moment, has the goodness of God so permeated our lives that we trust in his control and in his care for us. And it's worse. It's kind of one level higher when we pray for this to happen. And it happens to somebody that we're not particularly fond of. He causes the sun to rise on the good and the evil. causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So here I am being good and being just and yet somehow, some way. The evil and the unjust get it too. That, that leads to this third one. It just popped up on the screen. This, this, we, have, we continue in our sense of right and wrong. And we have a good, clear sense about that. There is an evil in the world. There is good in the world. There is justice in the world. And there is injustice in the world. And the genuine goodness of God does not surrender those things. Folks, there is a cultural current that would sweep us, that would move us to a place where we stand on something called uncertainty. And that is the idol to which we bow down. This, oh, well, I'm not here to judge. I'm not here to say what's good or bad. I'm just here to... There is good and there is evil in the world. And the genuine goodness of God in our lives, listen, the genuine goodness of God will help us be clear on what is just and what is unjust. We don't have to bow down um, to the idol of uncertainty. We don't have to get swept up in the cultural current that would lead us to that place. The genuine goodness of God doesn't ask us to. And furthermore, it would actually give us a solid place to stand. Clarity on what's right and what's wrong. Lastly, verse 46. 
For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? They would say it this way, that, that we are willing to risk that relationship. And he identifies two in particular, outsiders, tax collectors, those who, uh, uh, excuse me, um, outsiders and Gentiles. Uh, Gentiles, verse 47, those are, the, those are the outsiders. Those are the ones who are different than us. Um, but also uh, those who oppress us, tax collectors. They'd show up, knock on your door. Hey, the government of Rome says you owe $100. Uh, I have a 25% fee, so you actually pay me 125 bucks. You're like, come on, man, help a brother out. And he's sweetening his pot. He's, he's putting money in his back pocket by your hard work. And the question that Jesus asks is, that if there are moments when we risk the relationship and we've got people in the room who are paying the price right now because they were willing to say yes to some things, some hard relational things, And don't miss what he says. Don't even tax collectors do the same. Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Folks, if if we only love those, if we only love those who vote like us, think like us, talk like us, act like us, look like us, are bent towards the same things that we are, listen to the same radio programs or, or watch the same TV channels that we do, if, we're, if we are only um, loving those who are just like us, then folks, we are just like the world. And the church, if we are called to be anything, we are called to be different than the world. We follow someone who got up from the dead, folks. That's really, really radically different. We follow someone who rose from the dead. And so we are called to be different. We're called to be different. We as the people of God can do these kinds of things. We can risk even the vulnerability. Why? Because in some really important way, we are invulnerable because of what God has done for us. The church is called to be different. And his life has illustrated exactly, exactly what he has taught. This quote from C.S. Lewis sums it up. The rule for... All of us is perfectly simple. Don't waste your time bothering whether or not you love your neighbor. Act as if you did, he says. As soon as we do this, we'll find one of these, we'll find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will actually presently come to love him. And if you injure someone you dislike, you find you dis, you will find that you dislike him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. This is what Jesus has explained. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote about. This is what you and I get a chance to experience as the righteousness of Jesus permeates our lives. And love is born out of that. These are the kinds of people that we can become. His life perfectly illustrates this because you and I were enemies. This is how the Bible describes us in Romans chapter 5. There's a whole string of verses pulled together there. We were weakened, it says. Oh, well, we can kind of have some pity on people who, oh, no, no, no. And then Paul takes it up a different line. We were sinners. Oh, well, that's kind of rude. We were enemies of God, it says in verse 10. And yet Jesus has stepped onto the scene and loved us. 
His life perfectly illustrates what he has taught. And this is what we come to remember with communion. That you and I were separated from him. You and I deserved none of his goodness active in our lives. And yet he has come to love us. He has come to love us as enemies. He has come to change us and transform us. When he was hanging on the cross and he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do you think that sounds anything like love your enemies and pray for those who are persecuting you? Of course it does. We come to this moment to remember that Jesus is calling us to exactly what he has done for us. So I'm going to invite you, whether you're at home or here, if you need to fold up your notes or Bible or anything, or if you need to keep it open, let's just have a moment. We'll create a moment here where we can be reflective, thoughtful, and prepare ourselves, ready ourselves to take communion together. And if after you've kind of got settled, you want to bow your head, if you need to say anything to God, this is the moment to do so. Maybe it's sin that you need to confess. Maybe it's a commitment that you need to make. Whatever you need to do in this moment, you do business with him. Maybe you've got somebody next to you that you need to reach out to. Apologize to, to. There's something between you you can try to make right. Take a moment. Say whatever it is that you need to say to him. And now, Father, in Jesus' name and for the sake of his people here, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would put your finger on anything that we haven't already identified in our own lives. You, you would not let us... You, you would not let us get by this moment without doing some deeper work even than what you've already done. I think so many of us in a moment like this, Father, want to run to extremes, but God, help us to deal with the everyday, not the extreme. Help us to deal with what's going to happen this afternoon, not, not what might happen. Do deeper work than just the surface. Deeper work than just the box that we can check. Jesus, go to work there. And as you create space in us, may that space be filled not with more demands, but with your genuine goodness. May it sink deeper down into us. May it permeate us even more. May it fill up the things that we need filled up in order that love may be the fruit of our lives. This is what we ask now. In Christ's name, everybody said amen and amen. If 